Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Well, thank you for joining us today uh, and for being with us on this very special Father's Day 2020. Um, Long time ago, long, long time ago, uh, in school class, a little eight-year-old wrote this uh, little tribute. He called it Father. I don't know what the class assignment was, but that's what he wrote on. Wrote about his father. He said, he can climb the highest mountain, or swim the biggest ocean. He can fly the fastest plane and fight the strongest tiger. My father can do anything, but most of the time he just carries out the garbage. I also saw that if there's any father who really thinks that he's all important, he needs to remind himself that in this country, We honor fathers one day a year, but the pickle gets a whole week. So kind of puts you in your place, doesn't it? Well, for the fathers who are here, um, we do have a gift for you in the back on the table. It's a pen. It's not this pen, but when I was going through the pews and emptying things out this week, I found a pen that's from the Grace Brethren Church, and it's their 90th anniversary 17 years ago, and it still writes. So we got to figure out what company we got that from. So pretty, pretty nice. Most important thing that fathers can do uh, for their children is what Jesus um, does for us, the same thing. But Paul wrote about it in Ephesians 5 when he said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the most important thing, men, that we can do is to love our wives and our families and just be an example like Christ is for us. So um, I'm looking for different things. There it is. wanted to talk about the life of Joseph, and we're going to see that he really did have uh, a lot of purity in his life in this example. Joseph, according to Mr. Inrig, has become the poster child, not just for suffering, but for undeserved suffering. Man, did he get whacked around a lot. And uh, and you kind of wonder, what did he do wrong? What was going on for him? It started, uh, well, it started early on, I'm sure. But in our study with him, we saw that He got ditched by his brothers, literally thrown into a pit, into a cistern, and then ultimately sold into slavery, taken down to Egypt. And when we last talked about him, he was sold to an Egyptian officer named Potiphar. And that's where we're going to pick it up today in Genesis chapter 39. And I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. 
The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all of that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had, and with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he would eat. So it tells us there in the scripture that Potiphar was the captain of the guard. We don't know exactly what that means. Different interpretations. Some said he was a prominent court official. Some said he was a high-ranking military official. Uh, maybe he was a protector of Pharaoh. Uh, one person thought that he could possibly be the chief of the executioners, so that he might have been over that. By the way, I don't think that's what he was, but that's what one said. Another one said that he, he could have been a eunuch, um, but I don't think it was a eunuch in the physical sense. So whatever he was, he was very successful, even before Joseph came on the scene, and he was high-ranking in the officials' positions, so much so that he was able to accumulate slaves to live uh, within his household. Joseph's character and his faithfulness eventually becomes obvious to Potiphar. He was intelligent, he was a motivated young man, and he had the ability to perceive that these circumstances, these strange things that have been coming on to him, even though they were beyond his control, he knew that he could make the best of it. He could still do things that turned out okay. And God blessed him and blessed everybody who was around him. Jesus talked about uh, the fact that when you are faithful with a few things, God will place you in charge of many, many other things. And so a little bit of faithfulness can bring greater responsibilities, greater opportunities, and Joseph was definitely living that out. Now, I do want to remind you that uh, in this chapter alone, chapter 39 of Genesis, it says four times that the Lord was with Joseph. It says it in verse 2 and in verse 3. It says it again in verse 21 and verse 31. And that's kind of important to remember because I think it would be real easy for Joseph to think that that's not true. Yet it was. Joseph was faithful in serving, even though he was a slave. He still faithfully served Potiphar because he was not just serving a Gentile master. He was serving his God. And he was blessed. And I would love to know the details of that. I wish they would have told us in what ways was the household of Potiphar blessed. Um, you know, did the um, did the the soup never run out kind of thing? Or, uh, you know, did all the clothes stay clean all the time? Or it never got dust in the house? Or uh, it says the fields prospered too. Maybe 
double the, the harvest. Who knows? We don't know the details. But whatever it was, was obvious. And Potiphar, at least, uh, gave the credit to the presence of Joseph and his being there. Now, Joseph <clears throat> was someone who knew God. And, and here uh, it mentions in verse 2 that the Lord was with him. And that phrase, the Lord with him, uses that Hebrew name for God that the Jewish people prefer not to say. They don't speak that name. And we have an, somewhat of an understanding of what we think the name is. But to be honest with you, nobody knows exactly how to pronounce it. So we've Americanized it a little bit. And we use the word Jehovah sometimes for that. Joseph was not a secret follower of Jehovah. In fact, he lived it out openly and was very um, very much willing to serve God in, in an open way. Potiphar, on the other hand, was not a follower of Jehovah. Potiphar was a God follower. Not a God follower, I'm sorry, but an idol worshiper. He worshiped pagan idols. His name actually meant, Potiphar's name meant, he whom the sun god Ray has given. <laughs> sort of like the God's gift to humanity. That's who Potiphar was. <clears throat> he was quite mistaken, I would say. But he also knew a good thing when he saw it. And so he knew that Joseph was a very, very good thing. <clears throat> Now, Joseph himself grew up in a household with 10 older brothers. That had to be an unusual thing because they were a disaster. Those brothers were an absolute disaster. But Joseph grew up under the influence of Israel, not Jacob. Do you remember that? Do you remember that Jacob's name was eventually changed to Israel? He was the same guy, but a different person. He became a better father after that experience. If you remember back, Jacob had an experience at a place that he called Bethel, which means house of God. Um, and he, he met God. He wrestled with God there. And I like the phrase that God realigned his hip, but also realigned his heart. And God said from that time on, instead of calling him Jacob, which meant a trickster, somebody who deceived people. He renamed him from Jacob to the name Israel, which meant that you need to persist with God, to persist with God. Here's the point that I want to make on Jacob's parenting skills. A godly father made a world of difference. When Jacob was Jacob and a trickster, and was a self-promoter, a self-protector, um, very self-focused. Those 10 boys that he raised during that time naturally adopted some of those tendencies. But then he met God and wrestled with God, and, and his heart changed. And then he had a son named Joseph. And as Israel... As one who persists with God, he became spiritual, he became holy, he became uh, faithful to God. And Joseph grew up with a very faithful, pure heart. 
and it makes a world of difference, a world of difference. Maybe you know families like that where maybe a parent got saved later in life and what a difference it makes for the ones that were raised in the pre-Jesus experience and those who were raised in the post-Jesus experience. Anyhow, Joseph was impacted. His life was changed and it was different. Potiphar could see the spiritual values that Joseph had. His attitudes, his actions were different than everybody else's. And it was clear to Potiphar that all this wonderful success that his household was experiencing was cause and effect relationship with Joseph. So therefore, in verse 4, he entrusts absolutely everything under his care to Joseph. So Joseph becomes the executive assistant. He's made the comptroller. He's the first vice president of the household of Potiphar. And Potiphar giving him a better position means that he has a whole lot more opportunities to have a wider sphere of influence for God. I'm sure Joseph, as that started to develop, would now look back in his life and say, okay, now this makes sense. Um, God had given me promises and a vision of what was going to be ahead in the day. All of a sudden, I'm captured, I'm sold off. But now I end up in Potiphar's house, and I've been elevated. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Everything is working out the way it should. Joseph's character and his diligence have paid off. And clearly, <clears throat> Joseph's um, being there blessed the household of this Egyptian Potiphar. God's blessing was on everything that Potiphar had, and Potiphar knew it. He knew that that blessing was there. So in Joseph's life, He's probably looking at this and thinking, this is the crowning point of everything. Everything is, is great. I finally have arrived. All those dreams are starting to come true, at least to some extent. Then we start reading through verses 6 through 10, and we find out that there's a very unwelcomed advances. They come in there. <clears throat> Potiphar's wife starts trying to make advances toward Joseph. Actually, that's pretty gentle. She was about as subtle as a chainsaw in trying to uh, attract his attention. Verse 6 tells us that he was handsome. That word actually is a little bit bigger than that. They used that same exact Hebrew word back in chapter 29, verse 17, used it to describe Rachel. Joseph's mother. And there it was translated that she was lovely in form. So what most commentators will round out and say is it, that Joseph had probably an athletic build. You know, he was pretty studly, strong, athletic, and very, um, very much could draw attention to himself. And here with this woman, Potiphar's wife, it becomes crystal clear what her intentions are, and they are definitely not proper. Now, 
that kind of shocks us a little bit, but we need to realize in their culture, immorality permeated everything. It was normal. It was just expected of people. And, and they could have used the phrase, everybody's doing it. Just a lot like our culture today, isn't it? A lot of people think that. The only thing is that not everybody's doing it. Not everybody is improper today. And I doubt it was then. But in their culture, for her, um, that was probably not unusual. She may have also felt that she had a little bit of ownership over this guy, Joseph. He was a slave. Uh, he was just a piece of meat and could be done anything she wanted to do with. <clears throat> no one's ever going to really know what her thoughts were behind it. She persisted and Joseph resisted. What, a, what an unusual circumstance for him to be put in. So I, I thought, how did he resist these temptations? What gave him the strength and the knowledge to defeat that. And so I started thinking about Bible verses that probably could have come to mind to him. For instance, in Numbers 32, 23, it says, be sure your sins will find you out. That was Moses telling Israel that if you don't practice the things that God told you to do, God's going to know that and you're going to be judged for it. Um, perhaps what King David said was, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. So placing the word of God in our lives helps us to defeat the temptations that come at us. David also said in Psalm 51.4, keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent, of great transgressions. And so possibly these are the Bible verses that were running through Joseph's mind when he said, actually, that can't be true. These weren't written yet. <laughs> None of it was. In fact, the Ten Commandments, Moses, is still another 400 years away. He didn't have all those things, but you and I do. You and I have all these verses and many, many more that we can hide in our hearts so that we don't sin against our God. We can resort to those when time of need. Because you and I know that God's blessings on our life, same for Joseph, do not make us bulletproof. We're still going to get hit with temptations. And maybe it's not in the physical realm that Joseph was experiencing but you and I get hit with all kinds of temptations that would pull our hearts and minds away from God. And we need to learn to resist. I think Joseph's resistance becomes even more remarkable in light of the fact of how persistent she was and how seductive her manners became. <clears throat> and even in spite of all that, in spite of the limited knowledge of God's word and God's law. And in spite of the bad examples that his family had been and the bad examples he had around him in Egypt, and in spite of his own natural desires, he's a young man at this time, probably right around 20 or, you know, right in that area. And in spite of the tempting opportunities, this would have been in a secret setting 
no one would have known. It was safe. Nobody would have found out about this. But yet Joseph stayed pure. And in verses 8 and 9, it tells us why. So it says this, but Joseph refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph saw two reasons why he couldn't give in to this temptation. One was that he would not violate Potiphar's trust. He refused to do that. He knew that if he got caught, it would destroy everything. Everything that he's ever done or happened. Plus, in their era, this was a capital crime. You would be put to death for it. But also, Joseph, the second reason was he would not disobey God. He refused to do that. He knew God. He knew the Lord. He knew Jehovah. And he knew that God was the ever-present one, always there. And he would not allow himself to sin against God. Even though no one else would know, God would know. Remember what, um, okay, that's not the one I wanted. Um, I'm not sure where I'm at, but that's okay. David said in Psalm 51, 4, that against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That phrase has always fascinated me because of the rightness of it, of course, because all sin is a sin against a holy God. Sin against the righteousness of our God. But when David said that, he said against you and you only. That's what really gets me. Because I think David also sinned against Bathsheba. This is the exact experience that he's talking about when he confessed this. He also sinned against Uriah. And in a sense, the uh, soon-to-be-born baby he sinned against as well. And as king of Israel, he sinned against the entire nation of Israel. But that all just kind of paled in comparison when he thought, but God, you and your holiness, I have sinned against you. And the ultimate sin is against God in his mind. Here, if Joseph is going to yield, he knows he's going to violate himself. He's going to violate the marriage of Potiphar and his wife. He's probably going to um, destroy any godly influence that he might have had, any kind of a testimony that he had displayed. It's all gone. It's all gone. Oh, and by the way, he's probably going to be executed, too. So, you know, not a real good decision. The Bible tells us that temptation comes to us from at least three sources, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world pressures us to conform to its image, to be like everybody else. The devil tries to put the temptation of doubt in our minds. 
surely are you going to die? He said to Adam and Eve, if you eat the fruit, that's not true. That's not going to happen. Is God really going to judge you for this or that? The flesh, the inside of us just says, indulge. Take everything that you can get. Uh, Go for all the gusto. Um, But John reminds us in 1 John chapter 2 that the world and its desires are all passing away. It's all going away. It's all fading. But the one who does God's will will live forever. All those glorious temptations are useless. They're nothing. They're going to be gone. But living with Christ is eternal. Probably the sexual attraction is perhaps the strongest lure of mankind. And whether or not we're able to control that can either make us or break us as a person. Dr. Davis, in his commentary on Genesis, says that many believers flee temptation only to wait around the corner for it to catch up. That's not good. Let's see if I can find this particular quote from Mr. Bridges. There you go. Thank you, guys. They fixed me. That's good. Our first priority in times of adversity is to honor and glorify God by trusting him. The first thing that you need to do when you are slapped with temptation is to see how can I trust God through this? How can he get me out of this situation? How can I honor him with my purity. Now, remember earlier, Joseph said that God would know. Nobody else would know. And and it's very possible nobody else could know that this happened. But God would know. I've put in the bulletin for you um, several verses that just speak about God's presence with us all the time. So we come to verses 11 through 20, and we see that there's a final resistance that takes place and then an imprisonment. So these lurings of this lady become intensified. Someone said to resist temptation and be rewarded is one thing, but to resist and get in trouble is quite another. (laughs) That's what's really tragic here. He avoided sin. He did what was right. He did what was pure. And then he gets in big trouble for it. So just to remind you of the scene, this thing is orchestrated by Potiphar's wife. She somehow isolates the situation. She informs all of the normal workers there. I would imagine there were cooks and bakers and candlestick makers and all kinds of people in the room in the house that she just said, why don't you go do this? She gave them other assignments and they were all out of the house because she knew that uh, Joseph would come in at some point to do his daily bookkeeping or whatever it was he had to do in there as the chief of the household. And she knew she could get him alone. And then she approached him and he resisted. And even to the point of where He just had to escape. That's all he could do. And he took off and left the house. But she grabbed onto his outer cloak and and held on to it. Now, in their culture, that if it were the outer cloak that she grabbed, and I think it was, 
that would have often been used like at night when they were sleeping, they would use that for a blanket. And so it had connections to what she's scheming here. <clears throat> Joseph's situation was a no-win situation. If he yields or if he resists, his life is going to become really complicated either way. So this happens. Joseph runs. She's sitting there with his coat. The other workers come in. She makes up a story. Eventually, she hangs on to the coat until uh, Potiphar comes back, and she twists the facts conveniently to make it look bad on Joseph. She even uses the race card on him and says, that Hebrew slave that you brought in here, he came in here just to make sport of us. Every commentary I read had this quote. Only one of them had the source. We've, most of us my age or older have heard it. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I don't know where that came from. Guys, be careful if you're agreeing with that. So, um, <clears throat> I don't know where the quote came from or what it was from for William Congreve, but um, it's a popular one. I know that. Joseph was in a no-win situation. And especially in a foreign land, he had no one he can appeal to. There was no one that spoke his language. There was no one around who cared about him. No one. Yet Joseph had a pretty good sense of who he was. He understood that he was a follower of God. He had a clear understanding of what sin was. He knew what was right and wrong. And... He knew who God was and what God would do. So in verses 19 and 20, it tells us that uh, when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. When Potiphar heard about this, he burned with anger. This Joseph has to be dealt with. The law would have said death. So my question is, why did Potiphar show mercy to him? He didn't need to. I, a couple of possible answers. One would be, well, Potiphar was basically a merciful guy. He was a good dude. Uh, there's no way that's true. <laughs> there's no way he got the position he got if he was someone who typically showed mercy. Well, maybe he wanted to keep all of his options open. We've been obviously blessed because of Joseph. If I kill him off, that's not good. But if I just throw him in prison, maybe somehow that'll still influence and bless us. No, I don't, I don't think that's the real reason. I think the most likely story here is that Potiphar trusted Joseph more than he trusted his wife. He probably was accustomed to her having unusual things going on. He probably had serious misgivings about this whole affair and did not give a whole lot of credit to her story. He probably thought, Joseph doesn't come over that way. He doesn't seem to be that kind of a guy. You, on the other hand, are not very trustworthy. 
but he was in a no-win situation. Something has to be done about this. Other people knew. Now the servants are all aware of it. They're watching to see what's he going to do. He's got to do something to save face. So he allows Joseph to live, just that he allows him to live in prison. It's less than what was expected, but it was far harsher than what Joseph deserved. Joseph must have wondered how this made any sense in light of those dreams and those promises that God had given to him a long time ago. <clears throat> but Joseph's confidence was not in his ability to understand what was going on around him, his circumstances, but his confidence was in God. So let's look at a couple observations just to see what we can learn today about it. Number one would be when we're most successful, we're often the most vulnerable to temptation. We might think we're above temptation. We might think we don't deserve the temptation. We might think that, well, we might actually be oblivious to temptation. But it's going to come, and it's going to hit us uh, and take us when we're off our guard. In those times when things are good, we need to watch out for what's going on around us. Also, we will not resist temptation if we do not have a firm conviction. <clears throat> the time for commitment is before the temptation comes. I used to use this with youth when I used to do stuff with them, but I would say uh, the time to decide whether you're going to be a smoker or not is not when all of a sudden you're with your friends and someone says, hey, here, take one of these and tries to give it to you. Or the time to decide whether you're going to drink with the others is not when all of a sudden they're passing it around and, and it's coming to you. Or the time to decide whether premarital sex is right or wrong for you is not when you're in the backseat of a car with someone. Uh, you need to make those commitments and convictions before the temptation comes upon you. The greatest motivation for us is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only died to pay for our sins, but he also died so that you and I don't have to do those sins. We don't have to yield to those temptations. In fact, I've heard people say that anytime you're tempted, you should envision Christ on the cross because he died for what you're being tempted for. And I think that's a very valid point. What about this? When we, um, <clears throat> when we resist temptation, we may pay the price with people, but never with God. God doesn't forget People will, will treat you one way or the other, depending on what you do with a temptation. But God does not forget. One other thing that I wanted to bring up, too, is, um, and I think it's in your outline, we will not resist if we continually uh, expose ourselves to verbal and visual stimuli. If there's something that is very tempting to us and it's, it's a weakness for us, and yet we continue to expose ourselves to it, we're, we're not going to be able to resist that. 
We have to flee from those things, just like Joseph would flee from from this woman. You may have weakness, but God has strength. You may have sin, but God has grace. You may fail, but God remains faithful to us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, how we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from your word and from your servants. Joseph is a great one, and his life was filled with all sorts of adventures, positive and negative, probably more negative than anything. And yet for him to remain faithful to you is such an encouragement to us because we want to remain faithful to you as well. Lord, help us to learn the lessons of this life. Help us to be committed to you and to your word and to your truth before uh, that we get these temptations so that we can stand firm. Help us to avoid and keep those things away from us that are defeating us so that we are not an embarrassment to the cause of Jesus Christ. God, may we in our hearts be pure before you in every sense, mostly so that we can bring glory to your name. We do not want to tarnish the testimony of Jesus Christ in any way. May our lives reflect your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.